Welcome to OB Wannabes, an educational podcast about obstetrics and gynecology and women's health for medical students and women's healthcare providers. Hi, everyone. Good morning and welcome to OB Wannabes. I'm Cassie. And I'm Shelby. And we're really excited because today we have a guest speaker here to talk about pelvic pain. So today we have with us Dr. Tayaba Ahmed, uh, DO, who's a board certified physical medicine and rehabilitation physician, a fellow of the Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, and a member of the International Pelvic Pain Society. So welcome, Dr. Ahmed. Hi, thank you for having me. We're really excited uh, to learn more kind of about pelvic pain medicine and kind of what you do as a pelvic pain doctor. So I started, um, I'm a physiatrist, it's not a very common way to get into pelvic pain. So when people ask me, they're like, you're not GYN and you're not urology, what are you doing? Like, what did you do your specialty in? Um, So as physiatrists, you know, well, I don't know if you know, but when you go into, when you go into the field of physiatry, it's more about rehabilitation, about what happens to someone after something happens. How do we rehabilitate their body? Um, and make them functional so that they can live. Um, and how, what, what are the things that needs to be done to have a better quality of life? So there's no pelvic rehabilitation fields up until very recently. Um, there was the, you know, the stroke patients who go, go to the neurologist, they end up going into inpatient And then they maybe go to a rehab place at a neurology rehab place. And then there's a place to go. And when there is a traumatic brain injury or an accident, there is a place to go. Um, That's another field in uh, um, physiatry. And then there's spinal cord injuries and there's musculoskeletal after total neck hips and total knee replacements. And then, I mean, there's pediatric rehabilitation with patients with cerebral palsy who are born with defects or um, transverse myelitis after vaccinations. So, you know, we saw a lot of really different things, but we didn't see anything in pelvic rehabilitation. So it's a really kind of interesting way. Um, one of my colleagues that I met in, in residency had SI joint pain. And I actually had a baby during residency and she had a baby during residency. Um, after we graduated, I went on to do like a nice cush sports medicine mommy job where I worked a few hours a week and a few days a week and really just a few hours a week. Um, but then I had a second kid by accident. And so now I'm like, okay, I'm just going to take off some, you know, take some time and be part time. So I never really did um, full time until I got into my friend who was like, I'm going to go into women's health. And I was like, that's not even something we learned. So she kind of went around, met people, and there's only like very few physiatrists who do this. And then asked me if I wanted to shadow her on my day off. And so I started shadowing her and I saw how like much of a need there is for this. And um, she started a practice and I joined her like uh, in 2017 and we've been doing this together with, but and now she's like slowly hiring different um, physiatrist, which is kind of cool because this field doesn't exist and we'll have people reach out to us on social media and say, can you do like a fellowship in it? And we're like, uh, you know, I'm writing chapters on the book in like physiatry textbooks and I didn't even learn this in residency or med school. So it's like kind of crazy. So what do I do? I do a lot of different stuff. I see men and women and that's a lot of people think that I see just women who are postpartum who have like 
a, a bad delivery. That's like kind of not, I mean, it's kind of what, what should happen after delivery, you should go to a physiatrist to evaluate you for your pelvic floor and make sure your pelvic floor is okay. And you're not going to have pain with sex and chronic constipation. And because after delivery, there's so much that happens, but often you go to an OB and they're like, well, the baby's out, you're healthy, baby's healthy. You look pretty good down there. See you when you're pregnant again. And that's it. Um, and you know, that was my experience with my OB and I was like, you're not gonna like check my pelvic floor and check it. And she was just like, yeah. they're really not trained to do that. They're um, they're really not. I have a patient who's a gynecologist, and she's like, in my residency training, I was never taught where the pelvic floor was. It was more about get the cervix, get the cervix, <laughs> how to get into the get it get into the hole, like it's a dart or something. And so um, the pelvic floor, because I've been trained in muscles and joints and nerves, like I remember vividly in med school doing my physiatry rotation at NYU and being told like by my program director who was at that time was just my like someone that I was like scared of and attending. And, I, and he was like, do a muscle test. And so we've been doing muscle tests for this whole time in med school and residency. And so when I do my exam internally, I'm evaluating the muscles. I'm not evaluating the ovaries and I'm not going in and trying to like palpate the uterus or any of that. I'm just going in and evaluating the muscles and I can do that rectally, which is why it's different because a lot of GI doctors, they're focusing on the GI and the urologists are focusing on the bladder and the GYNs are focusing on the uterus. And so as physiatrists, we're doing like just the muscles, joints, and nerves of the entire pelvis. And so it's very interesting to see men and women from multiple different causes. I mean, they could have a fall on their tailbone when they were 10 years old and then become a, an avid pelotoner and now presenting with pelvic floor issues. Or they can, you know, you know, just have had a baby and they had a traumatic delivery, or they just had a hysterectomy and I had a patient a couple of weeks ago who was like, I had a hysterectomy and I feel like my cervix is shortened. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. Um, and we went in and her muscles were really tight. She's like, no, my husband keeps like, when he thrusts, it hurts and, and it feels like he's hitting a wall and it's, the muscles are just so tight. Um, and then we worked on it. We're doing some needling on it. We're relaxing her muscles and lo and behold, she's having better sex. So a lot of people just live their whole life thinking that this is how it's supposed to be and what they're supposed to be. And so it's not just about sex, it's about urinary urgency and frequency and constipation and pain with sitting and pain in their genitals, like just at baseline, like vulvodynia, um, vestibulodynia, and um, I mean, pudendal neuralgia. So there's a lot of different type of reasons why a person would come to see me. Like the first time I heard of pelvic pain medicine in general was just through physical therapy um, and hearing about, you know, my friends in PT school learning about pelvic floor physical therapy. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Um, and I, even in our classes in med school, we talk about uh, vulvodynia and things like that and that pain, but we don't really talk about what do you do for it. Um, I think, and it's something where and even seeing like in residency that they're not learning about it and talking about it as much. And it's such a new concept in terms of treatment, but it's not something that's new in terms of symptoms. Um, and people just, I feel like need to, like you said, they um, think that this is just normal and this is what they need, like what's going to happen for the rest of their lives, but there's things that they can do for it. hundred percent. And so it's funny because the physical therapists in every other field that I mentioned, 
they get their direction from their from the physiatrist. Um, but in pelvic, there was no physiatrist doing it. So they they came up with the field themselves and they started doing it and they've been doing it for like 20 years, but there was nobody to order the imaging and order the medications and order and do procedures. So there's only, there's like so much they can do. And a lot of people that so much is enough where they can go to therapy and the therapist can evaluate them and start treating them. But in some states you require a physician to give you a script for therapy. In some states you don't. In New York, it's you need 30 days. You can go to a PT without a script. And then after that, you need to have a, a, like a, a physical therapist from a physician. Um, but yeah, they've been doing it for a really long time. They, so many of them are, you know, practicing without, you know, really any, not, I wouldn't say guidance, but like help. Um, if they need um, like, if a patient wants to have uh, like their hip evaluated, now they have to send them back to the orthopedic surgeon or the primary care doctor to now give them, you know, a script for an MRI of the hip. And if they, you know, need like, you know, an MRI of their pelvis. So now the, like, but the ortho is like, but I don't understand how this pelvic floor is related to your hip. And that's another problem. There's a lot of people who don't really understand the connection between the pelvic floor and the hip. And so they're just focusing on the hip, 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 hip injections, hip, you know, let's do a hip surgery. And they're, but they're missing them. Like if they've never asked the patient about pain with sex and constipation and urinary symptoms, they would never have put together that the pelvic floor is a problem. And so oftentimes we feel like the pelvic floor is the missing link. Yeah, I I had a I have a lot of questions going into this uh, episode uh, just because I'm not super familiar with pelvic um, pain, um, but you talked a little bit about um, you know the symptoms of, uh, that someone might come to you for. Uh, what are some of the risk factors um, or you know underlying causes that someone might have pelvic pain? So. Um... Well, that's kind of like the runners um, will have hip issues. There are a lot of like, it's funny because like we'll say like, oh, do you play sports? And some will be like, oh, I rode horses. Well, I mean, imagine sitting on a saddle all day. That's going to cause pelvic floor issues. It's not guaranteed it will. And sometimes I, I, we say it's like the perfect storm. You, you, know, you could be a, a horseback rider for like your whole life, but you have one fall on your tailbone and now your tailbone is like shifted and now all of a sudden it's hurting. So I can't, we can't blame the Peloton, but like we can say that the Peloton does cause more problems sometimes um, for patients who have pelvic pain. So if they have vulvodynia, sitting on a Peloton saddle is not probably the funnest thing to do because it's going to cause more irritation, aggravation to the nerves and the tissue um, and the vulva and the vestibule. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really just depends, you know, anxiety, anxiety causes a lot of clenching. So, um, patients who come to me, sometimes they'll say, you know, I don't know where this came from, but they're like, they're, I ask them about migraines and if they clench their jaws and they're like, yeah, I clenched my jaw. I was like, do you have migraines? Do you have any autoimmune conditions? Do you have a history of biking? Do you have any history of falls? Any unwanted sexual contact? Like there's just so many things. And then I like put the pieces together and then it doesn't really matter what caused it because at the end of the day, we just want to treat it. But sometimes they want to know like, what do you think is the cause? Like, how did this happen to me? 
and then we kind of put together the pieces. So everyone's very different, but mm. yeah, um, anxiety is a big one. Um, you know, if they have interstitial cystitis or if they have endometriosis at baseline or they have any rheumatologic conditions at baseline, like Ehlers-Danlos, um, those ones are like, you can't do anything about it. Right. Cause you're born with it. You're systemic. There's not, um, there's not like something that, you know, a lot of people with, uh, weak connective tissue disorders. So they are going to have a, a propensity to have hypermobile joints, which are going to cause more problems in their pelvis because things are going to be kind of constantly shifted. Um, people who have lumbar lumbar issues, like they could have a history of multiple um, or like a spondy or like even just herniations. Um, and what's, what happens is, is a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, oh, I had a laminectomy. Um, or microdisectomy, and uh, I didn't get better. And my doctor thought it was my back causing all my pelvic stuff. And they, a lot of people tend to go straight to the back, um, but that's not always the case. And then you're like, uh, sorry, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was the lumbar spine. Uh, I had a patient once come to me who had her tailbone removed because she had so much pain in her tailbone. And then mm -hmm. I examined her, and I was like, I don't, I don't know if it was her tailbone or not, but I, I know your hips are the problem. And so we. We worked on her, she was in between pregnancies and then she got her hips done, um, arthroscopies and, and now she's feeling great. And she was like, I probably didn't need to get my tailbone removed, um, which is kind of crazy. So I've heard, I've heard a lot of really different stories. I had a patient who had their bladder removed once um, because her bladder hurt so much. I have had a patient who had a, um, a colostomy because they had pain with having bowel movements and and then had it reversed because it, he's continued to have pain after having the colostomy. I mean, so people get really desperate. I had a patient remove a testicle because he was having so much testicular pain. I mean, this mm -hmm. is all before I saw them. So these are, I would have, I definitely have advised them not to have done these things because you'll still have phantom pain. And that's where it's so hard to treat pain is because there's this component of central sensitization when your brain is so sensitized to pain it's hard to make it go away. Yeah, that's so interesting. I guess I didn't realize how um, kind of diverse uh, pelvic pain could be. And, you know, that probably affects the way that you treat um, their pelvic pain or, or does it kind of have like a blanket uh, range of treatment? Um, I mean, obviously if someone has an un a history of unwanted sexual contact, I'm going to kind of delve into that and ask them to, like if they're going to therapy and if they haven't like whereas someone who's you know supposedly mentally you know not depressed or anxious or not describing it I mean sometimes I'll have really young couples come in and they want to have intercourse and it's hurting and it's bothering them but they really want to focus on it and they go through sex therapy um, so everybody does get their like tailored treatment whereas it's not just like a one size fits all, but majority of patients benefit from a lot of the same things because the pelvic floor is basically the pelvic floor. Um, and if you don't know, the pelvic floor travels between the pubic ramus and the tailbone, and it holds up your bladder, your bowel, and your uterus. And depending if you're a male or identify as male, you might have a prostate. Um, but other than that, um, all of those organs travel right through that pelvic floor. And so if those muscles are tight, 
it's not a good thing. And a lot of people are always like, tight's good, tight is good. No, 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 tight's not good. You don't want to be tight, but you also don't want to be loose because loose is like weak. But but as a med student, you probably understand the difference because whereas I'll, I'll say this to patients, I'm like, you know, the actin and myosin and the muscles are going like this and there's like the ATP. And when you run out of ATP, your muscles shorten. And they're like, yeah, no, but okay. So I'm like, but imagine just walking around with your shoulders shrugged all day long. That's basically what you're doing in your pelvic floor because there's not enough energy to allow your muscles to be uh, lengthened. Um, and so uh, definitely tailoring different things and pelvic physical therapy is like one of my number one that everyone rec I recommend to, unless they're like very flared from it. Um, and sometimes that vulvodynia picture will be very flared from it, but sometimes they'll do amazing with it and it'll really improve. I've seen patients who've had vulvodynia and like think of it as a, a thing of the past and they're like, yeah, no issues. I'm fine now. And it really just depends on what's provoking them. So obviously as providers or for us, future providers, we need to be able to recognize when to um, refer our patients and that's on us to kind of... Um, look into that and realize when to send them to someone for pelvic pain. But for patients, because I, you know, I think it's important, you know, that they are also advocating for themselves and they have the knowledge. When should a patient talk to their provider about pelvic pain? Because like you mentioned, a lot of times patients are thinking, you know, this is normal. This is what's supposed to be happening and I don't need to talk about it. So, I mean, well, it's on you, but the thing is, is that sometimes I tell doctors, like I'll, we, I meet refers all the time. Sometimes I'll get a patient come from, you know, I get more from physical therapists because they understand like, oh, I have a limitation. I need to like send someone because maybe this patient would benefit from some sort of suppository or a cream or maybe, you know, or they don't, you know, these patients are frustrated and they're very upset and emotional. And so it's hard to treat patients like this alone. And so physical therapists tend to be the ones who send a lot. GYNs, they don't always know that I exist. So I have to go out there and tell them I exist. And so that's part of becoming a physician and being in private practice um, where there's no like, you know, sign like this is a pelvic pain doctor that's not a GYN. So, and understanding that I'm not competition um, because that's another issue because a lot of people find that like, you don't want to step on other providers' toes. And, and I'm not trying to steal anyone's patient or do what a GYN does. I don't do pap smears. I don't check for hormones. I don't do transvaginal ultrasounds. I don't um, do lab work. So um, I'm not, I don't want to be that person. So I always have my patients go to a GYN, make sure it's not. So if a patient is like, I'm having pain, um, majority of primary care doctors will say, go to your, go to your GYN or they'll say, you know, or you're having rectal pain, go to a GI doctor. Um, and then what will a GI doctor do? Usually they'll check your stool. They'll do a rectal, they'll do a colonoscopy. And sometimes the patients will say, well, that didn't work. Okay. Let's try some creams, maybe some suppositories, maybe something. And that might not work, um, because they're not really addressing the pelvic floor and they're just addressing the anus. So if they're like, well, we don't have hemorrhoids and you don't have an anal fissure, I'm not, and you don't have any polyps, I'm not really sure. So, you know, it's hard, it's hard for patients because they're like, well, then who do I go to now? Like my GI says, I'm fine. My GYN said, I don't have a, any cysts. I don't have any problems with my, you know, ovaries look good and everything looks fine. What do I do now? So patients tend to just one, either give up 
or to just Google search. I mean, there are all these subreddit um, forums that patients are finding us on and they're like, oh, you know, I, I found you on this like really teeny tiny thread about like this, you know, persistent genital arousal disorder. And it's like something so not talked about and I've read really terrible articles about it and I don't know what to do and I'm desperate. I mean, yesterday, just yesterday, two of my male patients came to me from the internet. They found me on, on a website and they were like, you know, so in terms of patients, I think they should, when something doesn't feel right or normal, they should get help right away. I mean, because the longer you've been in pain, the harder it is to treat. And I know that's hard to hear for people, but when your body is like abnormal for a certain way, it starts to affect your central nervous system. And that's when things get really hard to treat. Even for me, like I'll have patients who are seven years old and they'll come in and they'll say, I found you on the internet. Do you think you can help me? I've had 20 years of pressure coming out of my anus. And like 20 years of that, that's gonna be really difficult for me to do, um, but I can help you and try, but I can't, I can't guarantee anything because 20 years is like 20 years of your connective tissue being a certain way, you know? So the sooner the better is my uh, short answer. So interesting. Um, and then, so I know you talked a little bit about, um, you know, pelvic floor PT. What are some of the other methods that you use to treat someone that comes to see you? So I will prescribe uh, acupuncture for patients, um, but I specifically say to the pelvis. So that might not be in every acupuncturist. Um, education. So I work with, I mean, here in Manhattan, I'm so lucky because there's so many specialized people down here that I can work with. But like, as soon as you leave New York, and I get patients who come to me from like Oklahoma and Virginia, and like I've had California patients and Oregon, like people have like flew in or during now because of COVID, and we have so much unrestricted access to patients, people are telehealthing from like, I was talking to a patient from Kuwait. So like, um, so there's no, there's not like, I can't do all that. I can, I'm just lucky if I can get them like into the hands of a good pelvic physical therapist. Um, a lot of it is medications, um, some to work on the central nervous system, um, encouraging acupuncture and meditation and yoga, um, just to kind of improve the blood flow because a little bit of that is central nervous system and a little bit of it is, is peripheral nervous system. So working on both um, suppositories to use to relax the muscles in the pelvic floor um, and then needling. Some, if, if they're able to come in, I will needle a patient's pelvic floor to decrease the tension in the muscles. And that really helps kind of speed things move a lot, like much faster. So like with the patient, patients have told me that like needling one time is equivalent to going to PT five times because you know there's only so much a physical therapist can do in like 35 to 40 minutes with her finger going in intravaginally i mean there's you know it's like when you get a massage and i, well, I don't know you guys you guys have time for it but when if i go for a massage i sit down and the lady will say do you want to do 60 minutes or do you want an, an hour like like or an hour and 20 like like how much more and i'm like i could keep going like but physical therapists can't do that they have a cutoff um, and that's the other thing. There are some physical therapists who only do 30 minutes and they're in network and um, they're just because of the way insurance is, they just can't see patients for longer. And so there is a difference between physical therapy that might be in network versus out of network. And so 
that and like dealing with that as a provider is very frustrating. So like figuring out, I mean, I've had physical therapists complain to me that like, oh man, I wish I could see a patient for an hour and a half. Like I see my patients for an hour and a half at their initial visit, which is like crazy as I'm sure. Oh. You've heard. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I mean, there are for like at least an hour, hour 15, hour and a half, depending on the situation. If we decide to do some needling that day, we might, I might be with a patient for like two and a half hours. Um, just going through all, everything and making sure they're aware of what the side effects are and like prepping them and using ultrasound and all of that, like could be a very long visit, but I'm also not double booking patients. Um, and so I recently did a talk for, I think Kansas city DO school, um, like PM and R club. And I was talking to them about insurance and being in network and out of network. And they were like, they didn't know any of it. I didn't know any of this stuff until I started, um, like my, like, working because you don't learn this stuff in residency or med school. Nobody tells you anything about being in network versus out of network. So um, there's just a lot, there's a lot and, and there's a huge difference depending on that. So that could be another time. Oh, so cool. There's, I honestly, I don't think I knew much about pelvic pain uh, before this. I mean, it sounds like a lot of people don't. <laughs> Um, but it's so cool that you're, you know, kind of a pioneer in this field and, uh, hopefully it becomes more popular as the years go on. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's only going to get bigger and bigger. Cause I mean, I've had a, a resident from like a, a program around here, PM&R resident was like, can I shadow you for a day? And, um, you know, like we, you know, residents and med students tend to slow things down a little bit. So we don't do that quite often, but um, it, but yeah, like I think people are finding it to be more interesting and are a field that they want to go into because, you know, I didn't sign up for PM&R thinking I was going to be doing rectal exams and vaginal exams. And now here I am doing them every day and like assessing muscles and, and I thought, okay, this is weird, but now I'm doing it and it's totally normal. Yeah, it sounds like you have a good, um, you know, med students, we always ask about work-life balance, but it sounds like you have a good uh, lifestyle in the field that you're in as well. Yeah, there's a physiatry, I mean, like, it used to be like the PMR, maybe you've heard this, plenty of money and relaxation, and that's like the, 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 the term, and then I think road the road to success was radiology, ophthalmology, A, anesthesiology, D, dermatology. So I don't know if like, um, I, would, I know it's a little bit harder to get into physiatry now because when I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So my like really quick blurb into physiatry was I was a fourth year med student. I had applied anesthesia and, and pediatrics. Cause I thought I was gonna be a pediatrician. And my husband, my husband at the time was anesthesia. And he was a year ahead of me. So I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to apply pediatric and anesthesia. And I did my anesthesia rotation and I was, I am not a morning person. So I could not do it. And they were like so intense in the OR. And I actually really enjoyed surgery, but I just knew I couldn't do those hours. And um, then I did pediatrics and I just felt like this was really hard. And I don't think people appreciate the field as much as they should. And so I just kind of was like talking to a friend and she was like, why don't you do the NYU PM&R rotation? I was like, okay, I have an elective. I'll just do it. I applied 
for PM&R before even doing my rotation. She's like, I think you'll like wow. it. Just apply for it. I mean, I guess I was at that time things were cheaper. I could have applied. I, I, my parents were like, just apply, whatever. You don't know what. So I did the rotation. I applied for residency in PM&R. I managed to get like a good ten interviews, and um, I did my exit interview with the rotation the day before uh, my last rotation, uh, and then I had my residency interview like literally the next day with the same program director. So it was like in the bag for me. I got in and he like knew who I was, all the chief residents. I like kissed their butt and I got in and thankfully it worked out for me because I don't know where I would be right now if I hadn't like even heard of the field. So yeah, that's really I don't know cool. where you're gonna be. Yeah. Um, so obviously you are a osteopathic physician um, and with being, um, really like musculoskeletal based, do you use osteopathic manipulative treatments in your um, treatment at all or OMT or anything? So when I was in sports, I did a little bit, um, but to, I'll be completely honest, I don't have time now. It's, it's, it's also like, this is like a little bit of like bureaucracy, like there's just no time. And, um, and also like, you're really, you're not compensated for that amount of time if, if you're like doing other things. So you can't really necessarily bill for procedures and do all that. And it just, is not enough time. And, and it's unfortunate. I'll do it on my husband here and there, but like, um, it's one, of, and I also never felt like I was that good at it. That I felt like I, it was like a service I should provide to patients. So I actually prefer to just refer to them to someone who does it. And I actually tell them my patients in like the area, I'm like, go back to my med school because they're really awesome professors there who do it in the clinic. And, and that's where I'm, I'm like, if I had to go somewhere, I would go there. And so that's what I tell um, a lot of my patients because I just, I don't feel like I'm skilled enough um, to do it. And it's been so long. And I mean, you guys are like in it right now and you probably love it and practice on each other. But like, it's so hard once you get to residency to maintain those skills, especially if you do a non um, osteopathic residency right. where you're with like a lot of allopaths, they have no idea what you're doing. It's, and you're just like on call all the time. It's just, it's like hard. So I, I wonder what the percentage of patients of, of osteopathic physicians actually, you know, maintain their skills. I don't think it's super high unless you're in um, an OMT specialty. Um, but it's always a question that I always like to ask because it's, yeah. you know, like you said, we're in it, we're using it all the time right now because we are doing it on each other. We're doing it in class and stuff, but so what's your favorite part of your job? Um, talking to people. So my husband always hears me on the phone and he's like, I talk, he's, he actually was like, the amount of time you talk to that one patient, sometimes it'll be like seven o'clock at night and I'll call a patient and he's, he'll be like, I haven't talked to, his patients are all going under anesthesia. So he's like, oh, I haven't talked to a patient, like maybe that's from like September to December is how long like that. 20 minute conversation. I mean, like I'm a, a people person and he's not. So it worked out that he went into that field, but um, I like talking to people and trying to figure out where their pain's coming from um, because like the follow-ups, you know, what can we do? What can we do? But like the, the initial consults, the, like the, the fun ones, like of the day, like, what am I going to do? How are we? It's like detective time. Let's figure out where this came from. Let's, you know, because sometimes people just come in completely lost and they have no idea. 
Um, and so that's, that's, that's my favorite part, seeing new patients. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, this was really informative and um, yeah, it's been a joy to talk to you. <laughs> oh, anytime. I'm glad. Um, I'm glad you guys are like interested and, and thanks for reaching out because um, I'm always like, yeah, if anybody is interested in the field, it's, it's like really important because you guys are our future. So yeah, and we're definitely not getting this education about it in school. Unfortunately, hopefully that's going to change as, you know, it becomes, I don't want to say more popular, but um, just, I guess, more well-known. Um, and it's, unfor again, unfortunate, but I'm really glad that we've had the chance to talk to you and learn more about it. And hopefully um, there's going to be some people listening to this who it's going to help them out a lot too. Good, I'm glad. I, I, I'm always like willing to talk about pelvic pain. That's the main thing I have to say. It's a good thing to know about, I think, especially with, you know, if we, you know, don't become um, PM&R doctors um, or, you know, whatever field we go into, it's probably good to understand, you know, or kind of have um, this on our radar when a patient is complaining about pain. Because um, I think, especially in school, we're taught like, okay, like think of the systems like GI, urinary, GU, you know, and no one's thinking about the musculoskeletal, so. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, hopefully Cassie and I and our listeners, <laughs> our audience will uh, have a better understanding of that now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so just really briefly, like that pelvic floor there, there's the, the hips, there's the labrum, um, there can be impingement in the hips, there can be ilionguinal hernias or inguinal hernias and um, genitofemoral pain that goes down to the legs and down to the genitals. Um, you can have present with that pudendal neuralgia pain, which is innervating the entire pelvic floor. Um, so, so much of that is all connected to your bowel and your bladder. And so just like stepping back and even talking about endometriosis, it's like diagnosed that it takes seven to 10 years to get a diagnosis. It's one in every 10 women. I feel like I diagnose it more than a lot of like the GYNs and like the ones of my patients have referred, they're like, no, my, my GYN said I'm too young to have endo. And I'm like, no, you're 27. You're definitely old enough to have endo. It's in fetal cells now. So we know that now it's, um, and like debunking all of the old myths that like, oh, pregnancy will make endometriosis go away, which we know now that's not true. Um, but like when I was in med school, they didn't teach us about endometriosis. We didn't know about it. It wasn't there. It wasn't like a thing. So I, I'm, you know, even just for patients knowing that like, oh, their doctors aren't perfect and we don't know everything. And if something is still bothering us and we can't find a cause, go to another one or keep looking it up or Google your symptoms and you don't know what you'll find in subreddit. But like sometimes it's not the worst thing. I like, you know a lot of doctors complain about like, oh, don't be, you know, don't Google your symptoms. But, but like some patients have to because they just don't have access to like, good healthcare. And, and that's another mm -hmm. big issue in, in America. Yeah. Um, especially with like minorities. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Ahmed. No problem. I'm on um, a surgery rotation right now and I was just doing wound care and there's a patient who came in who has um, pyroderma gangrenosum, which is super rare, but um, for them to see, and she 
had gone to so many different doctors and they're like, oh no, you just have like, and like, it's just a wound that won't close from your, this accident that you had. She went to a dermatologist. The dermatologist didn't know what it was. Um, and the uh, PA who was treating her for wound care was like, this is what's going on. Like, we need to keep going. We're going to keep going to different doctors until we find someone um, who's going to treat you. And so she went back to her primary care and had like all the stuff pulled up on her phone from like Mayo Clinic. Um, and she's like, this is what it is. Um, I did the research and like, you need to look at it. And her doctor went home and did research because the patient was so insistent on it. I was like, okay, yes. So here's, we're going to get you the referrals to these people. Here's the treatments that we need to do according to this and finally listen to her. But it took the patient having to do that. So sometimes it sucks that that's how it is, but having the patients come and be like, you know, I look this up. Can you look into this more? And as providers, if it's something we're not familiar with, then being like, okay, I'm going to trust my patient and listen to them and look into this. hundred percent. I mean, if you, if it was you and you had like really painful periods and your GYN kept saying, well, I don't see anything that's normal. I mean, you're going to keep trying to figure out what else it could be. And I mean, I find so many patients follow me because of like hashtags. They find me because of like hashtag endometriosis or hashtag, and they're getting that education there. And it, you know, you would do the same for your family. So of course we have to tell people to do the same. Like, don't, don't limit yourself. And yeah, like, don't be like, well, you know, the search said that vaccines are, you know, cause autism. Like, I mean, there's a, there's like a difference between misinformation and like, getting proper education. Like don't, don't Google stuff that like, don't see something on TMZ. That's like about medicine. That's not exactly a good source. Um, mm -hmm. Go to like use, use appropriate sources and for, you know, patients like, you know, there are some that are like more specific. You can tell when something's written by like not a physician and um, you just have to make sure that you're, you're aware that like this could be false information and where uh, like, but you know, if you if you speak to enough of the right doctors, you'll get you'll get the right diagnosis. So our last question that we have for you is: Do you have any advice for medical students interested in pelvic pain medicine? Um, if you're interested in getting into it via physiatry, um, it's one of those things you're going to have to do kind of what I did, like find doctors that you can shadow and learn about it um, and see if you can chat. And I, I think a lot of people would be willing to shadow, uh, would be willing to allow a student in. I mean, learning about watching any physician's webinars, like anyone is open to watching anything I do or um, on YouTube and just, just typing my name in into Google, I'm sure you can find tons of video that we've done. Um, and like learning more about it in terms of, you know, pelvic pain in the GYN field, it's very similar. Uh, I mean, and there's also tons of text to read on pelvic pain. So just getting, uh, getting a sense of what it is like. So I'm, I, I feel like physiatrists, we're very limited. We're not, we're, we're not dealing with like the, we're not actually operating on the endo. I mean, we're diagnosing it clinically, but we're not di we're not operating. So it's a very, it's a very different way of an approach. Um, and so there are vulvar specialists um, who just focus on that, and they don't deliver babies, and they don't do anything else. And they're mostly just gynecologic. There are so many hormone specialists, and now like 
menopausal specialists who are just focusing on menopause and so many women aren't taught about menopause they have no idea what happens after they hit menopause and a lot of patients will complain to me and be like oh my gyn was like oh you're in menopause and that's it and that's the conversation and so they'll say like what can i do where am i supposed to get resources and so i will send them to like people who are more interested like they're that are more specialized in the field of menopause and talk to them about whether they still need a pap smear or whether they still need um replacement or if they're a candidate for it and what like there's no like guidebook that's like well these are the symptoms you're going to get because you may or may not get them but sometimes patients they stress out and they're like well is that a symptom of menopause is it am i supposed to get bleeding every now and again for menopause so like um i think just learning about the different ways to treat pelvic pain and you know shadowing i really think like I, if i was a med student i would try to reach out on my days off. I know there's like no days off in med school, but, um, <laughs> but like, you know, I know that's what rotations are for, but I feel like the, the more, you know, earlier about the field and like the lifestyle, like you're shadowing people or in med school in hospitals, right? So you don't get to see what their lifestyle is like. You don't get to see how often that person is talking to their children or their spouse. Like you don't get to see like, so, my, I have a, I have a medical assistant right now who wants to is applying to med school. And um, when we hired her, I said, you know, I'm happy to teach you about stuff like in the field. And the other day I was like, yesterday I was on the, my mom called, it was like 10 AM. And I was like, mom, I can't talk right now. I have a patient. And my medical assistant was like cracking up um, because I was like, I have to go. I, ha I literally have a patient here. And these are things you don't see in a hospital per se, because you know, private practice is very different. And, and majority of doctors, I mean, not majority, I don't know how, what the split is, but how many go into private versus stay in an academic center. But these things like you, you don't know until later, but if you can make these decisions sooner, then that can kind of guide you into, well, I'm gonna go into OB and I'm gonna just not do OB and I'm just gonna do GYN or I'm gonna do PMNR and I'm just, a lot of my, my colleagues in PMNR were like, I'm only doing PMNR so I can go straight to pain. Like I don't care about spinal cord injuries or traumatic brain injuries and strokes. Um, and that's kind of like how people, you know, get in the direction that they wanna be. We are third-year medical students at Toro University of Nevada College of Osteopathic Medicine, and we are student members of ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and ACUG, the American College of Osteopathic Obstetricians and Gynecologists. The views expressed in this episode are not representative of any of these organizations, and this podcast is not affiliated or associated with any of these organizations.